Mark Drake is on a mission to train leaders around the world about the miracle and mystery of Christ living his life in and through all who will believe. Join us on this journey into the heart of the real new covenant and the transforming power of true grace. But I'm going to be speaking today and next Sunday from the core message that's in the newest book. It's titled Running on Empty, but the subtitle is what really carries the message, and that is how weakness and failure can unleash the transforming power of God. You know, the very first song that we started with, and I realized that we weren't all here, so let me remind you that the very first song that we started with, the very first line of the very first song, the very first words were these, when I am at my weakest, your grace is at its strongest. When I am at my weakest, your grace is at its strongest. You know, one of the things that I have found in my own life about reading the Bible is that it's great fun and great encouragement to read the stories in the Bible of the great heroes of faith. But one of the reasons that we all tend to love that message so much is because those stories are over. You weren't with David when he led his army to help a neighboring king, and while you were off helping someone else, an army came in and slaughtered all your wives and all your children. You weren't with him. I wasn't part of that group. When they got back, they wanted to kill David because of the stupid decision he made to go off and help somebody else and leave his own stuff unguarded. We weren't there when David committed sin with Bathsheba and worse yet, had her husband murdered on purpose. We weren't there when Moses lied. We weren't there when Abraham lied. We weren't there when Gideon told his army, we're going to go against an army that's much greater than us and we're going to win. And the reason I know that is because I overheard a guy have a dream about a big loaf of bread. So come on, let's go to battle against a large enemy. We weren't there. We weren't there when the disciples continually, we weren't, we weren't there when Jesus made a statement about unless you uh, eat my flesh and drink my blood, and Peter took him aside and it said, Peter rebuked him. <laughs> and there was no lightning. Isn't that amazing? But we weren't there when these things happened. We read them when the stories are over. And in reading them when the stories are over, we can seriously miss the process that every single hero of faith went through. And that process, I think, can be summed up in one sentence, and that is, God must run us out of our own strength. For us to ever experience His power, we must be exhausted of our own best abilities. This is why we have trouble understanding statements like Paul made, I will then glory in my weakness, for when I am at my weakest, you are at your strongest within me. This is the reason that we have a hard time. You know, Paul writes to the church in Galatia and he says in chapter 3, Are you so foolish to think that what has begun in you by the power of the Spirit can somehow be completed by human effort? And the problem they were facing 
was they started out realizing that this relationship with God was all about a miracle that he started, he keeps going, and he finishes. And they begin to believe the lie of other teachers that came along saying, no, 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 you've got to keep this list of rules. You've got to obey first, then God will do something for you. Rather than receive what God wants to do for you, and that will empower you to obey, they got it turned around again, and they started depending again on their own human effort. Well intended, but God cannot allow our good intentions to truly prosper apart from his power and grace because he will be the one who receives all the glory. When this is over, all of creation will declare that it was because of him and nothing of ourselves. I wholeheartedly believe in good works, but good works must be the result of the grace of God at work in our lives. Good works that are done in the hope that it might convince God to like us better are actually dead works. Paul said, if I give away everything I own to the poor, but I'm not fully motivated by agape love, then it profits me nothing. And yet giving away to the poor has great intention. But if it's done strictly out of human effort, if it's done strictly to try to get God to like me, then it's actually telling God that he's not, a, not telling the truth, that he is a liar when he says he already loves us with an everlasting love. So God must work in our lives. And it seems like it's easier to read about Abraham's lying about his wife and his failure. It's easier to read about that than it is to look in the mirror and see your own weakness to see your own failure. And yet we have promises throughout the Scripture about how God feels about our weakness. Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever asked yourself, I wonder how God feels when I fail, when I fall short, when my weakness gets exposed. I wonder how God feels. Well, we don't have to wonder. The Bible tells us. Hebrews chapter 4 says, So then we have a great high priest who has entered into heaven, the Son of God, Jesus. So let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses. He understands our weaknesses. The NIV says he sympathizes with our weaknesses. But it doesn't stop there. It goes on. So then let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God, and there we will receive his mercy and find grace to help us when we need it most. How does God feel about you when your weakness gets exposed? He understands it. He understands you, and he is determined to use your weakness to demonstrate his transforming power inside of your own life. And I doubt that there is a more clear example of that than sitting around the table at the Last Supper. And, you know, several of the books that I've written in one way or another refer to this time in John, uh, John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. You've heard me say this again and again. Those five chapters are incredibly important because we're already in the upper room. By John 13, we're already in the upper room sitting around the table at what we call the Last Supper. And the conversation that goes on in John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, very, very important. These are the last words that we have recorded that Jesus says to the disciples before they go to the garden and pray. He's arrested, and then the whole drama of the crucifixion and the passion of the Christ plays out. But sitting around that table, Jesus said, I'm going to die. 
And they heard those words but didn't believe it. He had said that numerous times before. I will be crucified, but I will raise again. He had said that numerous times. But they couldn't comprehend it. And one of the reasons they couldn't is because the Jewish belief in the first century about the Messiah was that the Messiah would return or would come as the conquering hero. They had no concept in the rabbi's teaching or the Pharisee's teaching of a suffering servant Messiah. They did not understand Isaiah 53 about how he would be wounded and how he would be crushed. They didn't understand that. They were looking for God to send a hero that would destroy Rome and put Israel back in charge of the whole earth. But they missed the Messiah because they didn't understand that the way God's power always works is through death and resurrection. God's power always works through failure and resurrection. Jesus warned us about that when he said in John 12, which was in the week just before the crucifixion. And he said these words, except a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it is willing to die, then it will bring forth much fruit. And you and I have the same message from him about the grain of wheat. And that is unless our weaknesses and failures do what they're supposed to do in our lives, we will never be able to experience the transforming grace of God. So Jesus is sitting around the table in this upper room Last Supper experience. And all four gospel writers record it. Matthew records it about the same as Mark does. Luke adds a little bit more of the story that Mark does not give us. And then John adds a little bit more. So in Mark chapter, four, uh, chapter 14, beginning in verse 27, remember where they are now. They're sitting around the table. Jesus has already said to them, I'm going away. And they've already said, no, you're not. And he's already said, yes, I am. And they've already said, no, you're not. And he said, yes, I am. And they said, no. I mean, read it for yourself. This debate goes back and forth. No, you can't leave us. I must leave you. No, no. And he says, it's going to be good for you that I go away. And they said, you're crazy. It's not good. You're the guy. You're the leader. You No. And he said, if I don't go, the spirit can't come. They couldn't comprehend it. They couldn't wrap their brain around it. But Jesus said it very clearly. If I don't leave, the spirit cannot come. But when I leave, I will come back to you again. And John, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. But here's what's going to happen. I'm going to leave. Then the Father and I are going to send the Spirit. Now, you know the Spirit because He has been with you. This is John 14, 15, 16, and 17. You know the Spirit because He has been with you. But after this is all over, the Spirit is going to be in you. And in that moment, the bells had to go off in their heads of what they had been taught as good Jewish boys all of their lives about Jeremiah 31 saying, this is the new covenant that I will give. I will put my laws in you. Ezekiel 36, where he says, I will put my spirit in you. Totally foreign concept under the old covenant. But the key of the new covenant. And he told them that again and again, sitting around the table. And then he says this in Mark 14, 27. You will all fall away. Jesus told them. And then he quotes the Old Testament. He's speaking prophetically. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, go ahead into Galilee. Now, this is an amazing statement. 
I am going to die. You will all fall away. Then I am going to raise again, and you're going to meet me in Galilee. But the very next line tells us that they weren't listening to this at all. They were still hung up on the I'm going away. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Don't you love that? Can't you see Peter leaning over toward Jesus and saying, yes, Lord, I believe you. They will all fall away. But then he goes on, but not me. Even if all fall away, I will not. And then Jesus turns to Peter, and it's as if Jesus says, Peter, you need to just be quiet for a minute and listen to me. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. Now, don't you love Peter? Now, listen, Peter is saying here what you and I, we would think any good Christian ought to say. Peter insisted emphatically, verse 31, he insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And then the, all the rest of them chimed in, and all the others said the same, it says. So Jesus is saying, listen to me, guys, here's what's going to happen. Now, th th this, he said, I'll never eat this supper with you again until the kingdom comes. He's telling them prophetically what's going to happen in the very near future and in, in the far future. But the moment he says, I'm leaving, their ears shut off. They don't hear anything else. And so Peter begins to do what every Christian would naturally think is the right thing to do, declare his loyalty, profess his dedication. How many know what it's like to recommit your recommitment, to rededicate your rededication, to promise God you're never going to act like that again? How many knows what that feels like? Not a smart thing to do, but that's what Peter's doing because that sounds right. It sounds right to say, I will never leave you. I will not. Jesus is saying, yes, Peter, you will deny me. No, I won't. I will not. Yes, Peter, just calm down. Just listen to me. This is going to happen. Now, listen, this goes on even more specific in the book of Luke because Luke gives us a little more important pieces to the story. The same setting same situation, same conversation, but Luke adds this part to it in Luke twenty-two thirty-one. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, and I have given him permission to do it. Whoa. Doesn't this remind you of the beginning of the book of Job? There was a day when all the sons of God, the angelic beings, came before, and Satan came with them, and the only thing that the devil was given permission to do was to go so far and no further. There's something important we need to learn. When, when Paul is talking about coming back to Thessalonica, he says, I wanted to visit you several times, but Satan hindered us. And you know what he says next about the devil? Nothing. He doesn't say anything else. The next line is, but you are my joy, my love. My heart goes out to you. You are my awesome epistle written on men's hearts. He doesn't even refer back to the hindering of the devil. Why? Because those early believers understood that there is most definitely a devil. But he was created by God, and he is a lion on a leash who cannot go any further than what God will allow. When you read the book of Job, the devil says, well, of course Job is serving you. Look how you've blessed him. And God said, all right, 
You can afflict this part, but you can't go any further. And that's the, that's the, only, that's the, the only distance that the devil could do. It's all he could do was what God allowed. You say, well, why would God allow that? For the very same reason that we come here to this story about Peter. Peter is declaring his own self-will. His good intention, but it's his own strength. Jesus has already said, you are all going to fall away. What they're saying to Jesus is, you lie. You're not telling the truth. I will not do that. Yes, you will. No, I won't. Yes, you will. No, I won't. Well, actually, Peter, you'll do more than just fall away. You're going to curse and swear three times. You don't even know me. The other guys are just going to go hide, but you are going to swear you don't even know me. Don't you know what echoed in his ears was earlier when Jesus said, if someone will not confess me before men, I will not confess them before the Father? Let me ask you a question. Are you grateful that God knows your heart even when your actions don't reveal it? You see, one of the principles that we must build our lives upon is painted in a picture for us in 1 Samuel where Samuel has gone to Jesse's house to pick the king to replace Saul we know the story how David is the youngest and he doesn't even show up for the, for the meeting. But Samuel's response, or, or God's response to Samuel is, I look, man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart. And the choice that I'm going to make is going to be completely opposite of the choice that you would think I would make. And God does that throughout the scripture where he chooses people that would never be on our list of A players. He chooses people. And those people go through a series of failures. When we read Hebrews 11 about the heroes of faith, every single name listed there, we can go back into the Old Testament and find the numerous times that they failed, they faltered, their weakness showed up, their failure was exposed. But that did not disqualify them because their outward failure did not show the true condition of their heart. But it was a process of learning to rely on God. The only reason that God would cause Gideon to overhear a conversation about a big loaf of bread that came in and destroyed the enemy, and that would convince him that God is saying, go do battle against a bigger army, was because God was trying to teach him, trust in me, rely on me. And so for Gideon, he says, well, you got 30,000 soldiers. That's way too many. When do you ever have too many soldiers to fight a battle? God whittled them all the way down to how many? 300. Why? So that when the battle was won, there would be no question it was not Gideon's genius. It was not the strength of the warriors. It was entirely God. So Peter is professing his dedication, declaring his loyalty. Seems like the right thing to do. And yet Jesus keeps saying, he didn't say this might happen. He didn't say, be careful, or this is what, he said, this is what's going to happen. You'd think that that would be a brilliant time to say, well, then would you tell me what to do when it happens? But Peter can't say that. Why not? Because he's defending his own commitment. He's working hard to declare his own loyalty, and he's arguing back and forth to Jesus again and again. But listen to all that Jesus says. Simon Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. I've given him permission, but I have prayed for you so that your faith will not utterly fail. And that word fail, there's an interesting word. It's actually the Greek word that we get the word eclipse. 
And what it means is that it's going to look like by Peter's actions that his face is going to be blotted out more and more and more and more. But just like an eclipse, just as it gets to blot out the entire sun, the sun starts peeking out on the other side. And that's what Jesus says to Peter, but Peter doesn't hear it. All Peter can hear is, you're going to deny me. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. But Jesus goes on. And he says, Peter, I've already prayed for you. I've already seen you through this. How many knows our God lives above and beyond time? He's already seen you through your weakness, through your failure. He's already seen you be turned into what he is determined to make you into. This is why Paul could write. This is why Paul could write in Philippians 1.6, for I'm confident of this one thing. That he who began this work in you, he will complete it. Why could Paul say that? Because he himself had fallen to his weakness. He himself had been stretched beyond endurance. And he says again and again, that happened so we would learn to not rely on ourselves. We're run out of our own strength, our best efforts. Why? Because God wants to embarrass us not at all. He wants to work all things together for our good. All things are not good, but God will make them all work together for our eternal good. So Peter is all caught up in defending his behavior. Jesus is saying, Peter, I've already prayed for you that your faith will not be completely blotted out. Now listen to these words. Jesus is still talking to him. And when you turn around, you will strengthen your brothers. Now think about that. Jesus has been talking about the new covenant. He's already, when this conversation happens, he's already said what we read in John 15, 1. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Except, apart from me, you can do nothing. Except you keep drawing life from the vine as a branch, you can't do anything. He's already said all of this teaching. He's already established all of this reality that it's all about me flowing into you, Jesus says. He's already done all of that. And now he begins to speak to Peter. You're going to deny me. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. But Peter, listen to me. I've already prayed you through this. I've already interceded on your behalf, and I'm going to see you do it, but I'm going to see you make it through. But when you come out on the other side, you're going to have a strength that you don't have on this side of your failure. You're going to have a strength. You're going to have a life in you that you do not have on this side of your failure. But when you see your best intention and your best effort utterly fail, then you will come to know my strength. Your strength and my strength cannot work together. They are not compatible. So I'm going to love you enough that I'm going to run you out of your own strength. Why? So that my strength can come into you, filling you, and you will actually be able to turn around and strengthen your brothers who are all going to face their own difficulties. Jesus said in John, when he's in the middle of this conversation, he says, I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am the one. Amazing. But Peter doesn't hear that. All he hears is you're going to fail me. And so we go into later in the evening. Jesus is arrested, begins to be beaten. Now, none of the rulers, either Jewish rulers or Roman rulers, 
wanted to deal with this, what everybody proclaimed was an innocent man. So we have, if you would look at a layout of the city of old Jerusalem, you would see that you've got the temple over on one area, you've got Herod's palace in another, and you've got Pilate's palace in another, and there's a huge courtyard, or there was a huge courtyard in the middle. The Pharisees, because they're Jews, they don't have the ability to put Jesus to death. It's against Roman law. So they send him to Herod. So they drag him beaten and bloody through the courtyard to Herod. Herod doesn't want the responsibility of putting an innocent man to death, and he doesn't believe there's enough uh, uh, evidence against him. So he sends him to Pilate. So they drag him through the courtyard again, a bloodied mess after they beat him each place. They bring him to Pilate. Pilate doesn't want to mess with us, so he sends him back to Herod. And all night long, this is going on. And then we have this incredible statement in Luke 22, verse 54. And you can look this up later and get the recording. Then seizing him, Jesus, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. But when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. This guy was with Jesus. But he denied it. Woman, I do not know him, he said. A little later, someone else came and said, you also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he was a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I do not know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. Now listen to these words. And at that moment, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Luke twenty-two sixty-one. Imagine this. They are dragging Jesus from the temple to Herod's. Herod doesn't want him. Sends him to Pilate. They drag him through the courtyard. The courtyard is where Peter is. He's just been accused the third time. And that exact moment, the rooster crows and they are dragging Jesus back to Herod's place. Jesus is in the same courtyard that Peter is. And at the exact moment that they're dragging Jesus back through the courtyard, the rooster crows and Jesus turns and looks directly at Peter. Man, this failure could not have been more perfectly planned by God. This is the most perfectly planned failure you'll find in the Bible. But it is not to hurt Peter. It is not to embarrass Peter. It is not to crush Peter. It is to run Peter out of all of his own good intentions so that he may soon be able to come into the experience of Pentecost. If Peter did not go through this experience, he could never have had Pentecost. Everybody else may have gotten Pentecost, but Peter would not because he was still depending on his own strength and his own commitment. But God's great love for him had to strip him down. But this is what it says. Listen carefully now. It says, Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, which he had spoken to him, quote, Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Here's the problem. Sitting around the table that night, Jesus said, I'm going to be taken from you by force. I'm going to be crucified. But I will raise again, and we will meet up together again after the resurrection in Galilee. All Peter heard was, you're going to deny me. 
he immediately began out of pride to defend himself. The Bible says God must oppose the proud, but he gives his grace to the humble. Peter didn't humble himself because he couldn't understand that Jesus was speaking truth. So when, it said, when Luke says here, Peter remembered what Jesus said, here's the problem. Peter only remembered the very first thing Jesus said, Peter, you will betray me. That's all he remembered. Peter didn't remember the promise, I've already prayed you through this. You're going to turn around after this happens, and you're going to have a strength that's not your own. You're going to have a strength then that you do not have now, and I will meet you again in Galilee after I raise. He didn't remember any of that. All he remembered was, Peter, you are going to utterly fail me. And I want you to know that the accuser of the brethren, your adversary, fights day and night to only get you to hear when I'm at my weakest, when I'm at my weakest. But we sang the song, when I'm at my weakest, your grace is at its strongest. Why? Because it's all about him getting the credit and the glory. How does God feel about our weaknesses? He understands them. And he understands that if we will hang on to his promise, that he will make it all work together for our good. If we will listen to his promise... All Peter had to do when Jesus said, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to raise again, by the way, you're going to deny me. All Peter had to say was, okay, if you say it, it must be true. Tell me what to do when that happens. But Peter was too busy in his pride defending his own promise and his own commitment. I know what that feels like. I did it for years. I know what it feels like to feel that I've always got to look good in front of everybody. I've always got to be the guy who has the answers and make one up if you don't know the answer. Hey, if they're asking, they don't know the answer either, so just go ahead and make one up. I know what that feels like. I know what it feels like to mess up so bad and to be so embarrassed that you feel like your life has come to an end. But I also know what it feels like to have God show up and say, now that you are at your lowest, I can fill you with my transforming grace. I can fill you with the life of the resurrected Christ. And you have been through those situations again, but you'll go through them again, and so will I. But oh, if we would learn to keep on listening. Peter only remembered you're going to fail. But there was a day, not too long after this, where Jesus in the resurrection says to the women, by the way, he says, go tell my men to meet me in Galilee and tell Peter also. I've meditated on that line many times. And I can imagine two reasons why Jesus said that. Tell Peter also. One reason might be, because the other guys would not have thought Peter was part of the group now because they all knew what he did. But probably the biggest reason is Peter would have thought he's no longer a part of the group because of what he did. But Jesus' words through the women was, and tell Peter too, he's still my man. 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 You're still his man. You're still his woman. And your weakness and your failure, if you're willing to admit it, if you're willing to admit it, if you're willing to admit it, 
When David did the most horrible thing you could imagine and the prophet came to him, David's response, praise God, was, I am the man. He didn't blame it on Bathsheba. He didn't blame it on anybody else. And that's why he was a man for God's own heart. Not because he didn't have a man murdered. Not because he didn't commit adultery. But because when he was confronted with his own failure, he was willing to say, I am the man. So Jesus says, make sure Peter comes too because he's still part of my men. He's still part of the group. I want to pray for you this morning and pray for myself that we will be able to look at our weaknesses and our failures and with honesty and humility take responsibility for them. Refuse to put the blame on somebody else, but take the responsibility because of what Jesus has done through the cross. You and I can take the blame when we miss it, but we don't have to be crushed with the shame. Jesus took all of that for us. But you and I can take the blame and know that in the midst of our weakness and failure, His strength wants to show up. The power of His grace wants to do what it can only do when we give up. And sometimes we have to blow it so badly that the only option left is to give up. And that's when He will go to work in our lives. Would you stand with me, please? Bow your heads. Close your eyes and let's wait here just for a moment. If you've never given your life to Christ, if you've never turned over the ownership of your life to Jesus, there's no better time to do that than this very moment, right now. There's no better time for you than right now. Doesn't matter how bad you've blown it in your life, doesn't matter what bad choices you've made, doesn't matter what foolish decisions you might have made. He is the God of redemption. He's the God of transformation. He's the God who heals the broken and strengthens the wounded. He's the God who invites all to come to Him just as we are. But He does not leave us as we are. He will go to work inside of us. And if that's what you want today, if you've never given ownership of your life to Jesus, then I want to encourage you to do that and do it right now. I want you to do that right now. Right now is the best opportunity you're going to have to make the decision. If you want to do that, if you want to give over the ownership of your life, I want you just to slip your hand up for a minute so I know who to pray with. Slip up your hand. If that's you today, just slip up your hand. Anybody? I don't want to miss the opportunity for you to make the best and most, most important decision in your life. Okay, good, good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? Anybody else? All right, then I'd like for you to just pray along with me. Just a real simple prayer of turning over our lives. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you want us and you want us, you want me just like I am. And so I'm making a decision right now. I don't know how to do it. I don't know what it's going to look like. But my heart wants me to make this decision. So I'm making a decision right now to turn the ownership of my life over to you. I thank you that you have already paid for my sins and that you forgive my sins. I thank you for that. But I'm asking you to do more than just to forgive me. I'm asking you now to take ownership of my life. Cause your spirit to come into me.
and begin to change me from the inside out. I don't know how that happens or what it's going to look like, but I'm trusting you today with the ownership of my life. In Jesus' name, if you've done that, the Bible says that in this moment you are not only forgiven, but the Holy Spirit is coming into your life, into your heart right now. And a miracle is beginning for you right now. I would also want to invite anyone who wants prayer today to be ready to come on up here in just a moment. The team's going to sing. And as they do, I want you to seriously consider coming forward and having one of our friends on the prayer team up here agree with you that God will wash away the condemnation about your own weakness, your own failure, and help you to see it in a very different light because you have a high priest who understands what you're struggling with, where you're failing. He understands that. And he's wanting to teach you and teach me to not rely on ourselves, but to rely on his power within us. If that's the struggle that you're facing today and it's one that we all face at different times in our lives, I would strongly encourage you to not leave too quick, but to come forward. And let one of these friends here agree with you in prayer that God will change the way you see your own weakness and failure. And he will fill you with a hope that only comes when we humbly take responsibility, but we put our trust and our dependence fully upon him. So as the band begins to play, I want to encourage you to come up for prayer. And let's sing along with them as we worship the Lord here. Join us on this new covenant journey at markdrake.org.